now that we've seen Sigil in D&D 5e, it's interesting to take a look back on the history of the city and how entrenched it is in D&D lore. It didn't appear on the AD&D 1st edition manual of the plane, but was the focal point of the 2nd edition AD&D Planescape campaign. AD&D 2nd edition ends with Vecna attempting to enter Sigil and vaguely causing the Great Wheel to break into a multiverse. This led to different D&D campaign settings having distinct planar cosmologies, such as the Great Tree Arrangement of the Forgotten Realms. We don't get to see Sigil in 3rd edition, but are instead introduced to another planar metropolis, Union. While a lot of people think of D&D 4E as being the oddball of modern D&D, Sigil shows up in the Dungeon Master's Guide 2 as a location for Paragon-level play. We haven't seen Union since the Epic-level handbook, and Sigil showed up in the D&D 5E Dungeon Master's Guide even before the Planescape campaign setting was released. If you made it through all of that, you can now comment on how our esteemed narrator pronounced Sigil after all those references. By the way, it's Sigil, not Sigil. Zeb Cook said so. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is what taught us our RPG manners. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, they put me in charge of things. So, yeah, I guess I'm the head gnome. And I'm Jared, the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. We are going to look at the games we're running in our campaign journal, and then after that, we'll be talking about how to be a better player at your D&D table. Then we'll have some recommendations on D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So, campaign journal. Not too much to report. Uh, We did play our last session in the Night's Dark Terror game, uh, and this is where we hunted down the people transporting the last of the villagers that had been captured by the goblin raids, and they needed to be rescued. Along the way, we met a centaur who was more concerned about the safety and well-being of the horses that had been (laughs) stolen than the people, but, you know, he had his priorities. With his help, we were able to sneak up on this group and uh, stage a late-night raid on their encampment. It was a pretty fun, I don't know that I'd call it epic fight, but it was a pretty fun fight. We did some tactical stuff and just knock down, drag out, deal with the cultists, deal with the goblins, save the people. It went pretty well, and uh, I don't think we had, we, I think there may have been a couple of goblins that got away, but we kind of wrapped everything up, and we have a few different... Uh, clues and paths we could take if we decide to come back to this campaign next summer. What's interesting to me about that is there are some of those old D&D adventures that I would really be interested in reading through and figuring out, okay, this would still work really well today, or this was really confusing, you know, they, they needed a section to explain how this is connected to this, but I keep having this backlog of other things that keeps building up so I don't quite get to backtrack into old first and second edition D&D stuff. Yeah, I think that the GM Tristan, it's like he's aware of the new stuff coming out, but he's spent more of his time and effort in his own game world, which is the City of Cowles campaign. And then, you know, I think he picked up this out of nostalgia mm-hmm. 
and decided it would be, you know, a fun precursor to run before we get back into City, city of Cowles because we weren't going to have one of our players during the summer. Apropos of our topic today, I didn't get to run a game of D&D since our last episode, but I did get to play my Githyanki Circle of Stars Druid in Brandis Stoddard's campaign. Brandis' game is pretty ambitious. It's not quite a West Marches game, but it has some of those similar concepts. Can, can I ask you to define what a West Marches campaign is? Sure. For all of those people that may not know what a West Marches campaign is, um, it is basically where you tell people that you will be available to run on certain nights or days, whenever, and a number of people will just sign up and they will bring whatever characters they bring and they go out and explore a location and they find out things about like this, you know, this location that you have set up for them. So they'll basically kind of do a hex crawl thing. Maybe they'll find a, a tiny dungeon to start exploring. And then they, by the end of the session, the point is always that people are back to their starting base by the end of the session. So that when you run the next session, whoever's available goes out and it's whatever group is, uh, you know, is available and decides to go out and explore again that way. I ask because I didn't know. And for the longest time, I thought it was some specific <laughs> setting or module type thing and i started to realize a while ago that that was not the case so i'm like hey if i don't know some of our listeners might not know you know what's funny is i i feel bad because i can't remember the person that first coined that phrase because that was the name of his campaign you know but that was him explaining it on his blog is where all of this kind of started up where people just kind of sign up and do their thing and they all play in the same world but it's not like the same four to six people showing up every single session. Yeah. So Brandis's game is kind of like this. We're all part of a mercenary company, but the mercenary company also kind of acts as an adventurer's guild because they have locations posted that might be profitable to explore as long as you're willing to pay the company a finder's fee. So sometimes we get, you know, sent out to do something like establish this area so we can build a teleportation thing there so we can get skirmish units out there. And sometimes it's like, hey, we found this dungeon nearby that also has stuff in it. Let's start exploring it. So there are something like 30 characters active in Brandis's campaign. It's not 30 players because some people, like, once they get a, you know, character up to 10th level, you know, and some other people are playing with second or third level characters, they'll make a new character and join up with the, you know, with the, uh, the less experienced adventurers and something. So some people have two or three characters in this campaign as well. But most recently, we've been exploring this tomb that we discovered as part of a mission to create a stel uh, stable teleportation beacon in the region. And the players in this game were planning on exploring the tomb. But before we had a chance to do that, we saw this cloud, this dark shadowy cloud creeping towards the entrance to the, to the dungeon. Ooh. As it turned out, this was a necromancer and his spellcasting buddy and his bodyguard and a bone devil basically trying to sneak into this uh this dungeon and start plundering it for their own uses but because our watch noticed this moving <laughs> cloud in the middle of the night <laughs> it's almost like they you know hiding in the cardboard box that moves across <laughs> the floor and hopes nobody notices yes the person that was on watch had the uh the the metal gear solid uh, exclamation point go up <laughs> over their head and we thought, clouds don't move like that. <laughs> so I basically dropped a moonbeam in front of the entrance. 
in case, you know, they tried to go straight to the entrance. And then after everyone was awake, one of our uh, players threw a, um, a shatter into the middle of the, <laughs> the area, which broke the concentration. And hey, the cloud disappe- disappeared and we saw everybody that was hiding in it. So um, we decided that these probably weren't nice people, especially since they were traveling around with a bone devil. I mean, and, not to not to stereotype <laughs> or anything, but uh, necromancers. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, the necromancer didn't look particularly healthy. <laughs> <laughs> so we were kind of thinking, okay, is he undead or is he just practicing? So, <laughs> um, what was nice is I'm playing a Circle of Stars druid, and I really like how they work. Because you can do some neat things where instead of turning into animals, you like embody a constellation and you can do things like shooting out, you know, shooting stars at people and all kinds of things like that. But this time I decided I'm going to learn what it's like to just be a normal druid. So I'm sitting here playing with my moonbeam and repositioning it every turn. <laughs> I mean, as it turned out, that moonbeam managed to fry the, um, the uh, bodyguard in his armor. So I was pretty happy with that. Moonbeam's a pretty solid one. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as as amazing as uh uh crap the the Cuisinart spell of oh yeah doom <laughs> spiritual guardians spiritual yeah. guardians. <laughs> so what's really funny is we ended up fighting this necromancer and his friend and the bodyguard and the bone devil and the necromancer you know beelines into the dungeon once you know once he's been discovered and his bodyguard went pop when the moonbeam hit him. <laughs> Uh, he takes off down the stairs and everyone's either, you know, basically everyone decided they didn't want him to get any further into the dungeon. So he kind of concentrated fire on the poor guy, finished him off and then dealt with the bone devil last. Then we went through their stuff because, hey, we're mercenaries. We're not proud. <laughs> <laughs> you may not exactly be murder hobos, but you've got you've got <laughs> needs and, and things that need to be paid for. We're, we're business people. <laughs> so. Um, we went through their stuff. We found uh, magical robes, uh, you know, that the necromancer was carrying. We found a soul object that it looked like he was preparing to be his phylactery for once he becomes a lich. And apparently we killed him too early. Therefore, his soul is trapped in it and not coming back as an undead creature. <laughs> so he may not be happy with us. The bodyguard that I fried had a greatsword, which was a vicious greatsword. And... My Gith Yankee is, you know, Gith Yankee have this ability to like tap into the collective knowledge of other Gith Yankee. So therefore, I am a druid, but I know how to use greatswords because, you know, a lot of Gith Yankee use silver greatswords. So <laughs> I am a druid that's carrying around a vicious greatsword now. Okay, then. <laughs> What's really funny is after we go through all of their stuff and we kept them from going into the tomb. It was a relatively short session, so we did no exploring of this tomb. We just kept someone else from exploring. <laughs> but we all we had a lot of fun with it. I mean, it was kind of an interesting puzzle because we see this this dark cloud running along the ground and we're like, what is that? Is that a creature itself? Or is that someone, you know, doing providing cover? So we're like watching it as it as it's getting closer and we don't attack it at first. We're just like trying to come up with all of this conjecturing as like uh, it might be a darkness spell, but I think there is some, some a trace of necromancy in there. Maybe it you know sucks the life out of things. And then finally, one of us was just like, I'm, I'm just going to throw a shatter in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, so that was my 
player side gaming there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you got to play. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, I do enjoy that. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. We're going to move into our Dungeon Master's Workshop section now. And as you can tell by the title of this segment, a lot of our time discussing our games revolves around how Dungeon Masters can get better at their jobs. But the Dungeon Master isn't the only person at the table responsible for creating a fun environment. There's a lot of things that we can do as players and a lot of things we can avoid as players that can make the experience better for everyone at the table. And since both of us have been spending some time on the colorful side of the DM screen lately, we thought it was a good time to visit this topic. (laughs) Since we both DM and this is the Dungeon Master's Workshop, let's ease into this concept. Can you remember a time when you feel a player's actions made a game less fun for everyone at the table? How long do we have? (laughs) We have both played for a long time. (laughs) First off, I'm going to warn folks that I am going to be referencing some non-D&D games. Being a good player isn't confined to a single system. While there are some lessons that can be learned from, you know, being a a good D&D player, there's a lot more general universal ideas that can be applied to any game. Mm -hmm. Luckily, my very first example does come from a D&D game. (laughs) There was a con game quite a few years ago where all of the PCs were supposed to be siblings that were adventurers. The hook of the game was that they had been hired to go out of the city and investigate something concerning out in the countryside. I could not for the life of me tell you what that was because we didn't get there. (laughs) We had a section of the game, you know, after we had gotten this mission, we had a section of the game where we could prep, tell, tell the GM what you're doing to prepare for this journey. And one of the brothers of this sibling group decided he's going to go get us some horses. He's a rogue. He, of course, is not getting us horses in the most legal of manners, <laughs> which was funny and amusing because ha 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 ha, rogue brothers stealing some horses. We were supposed to be a bunch of ne'er-do-wells anyway. Yeah. One player who I have many more experiences with later on in my life that I regret <laughs> was playing the cleric, and he decided that because he was lawful good that he needed to turn his brother into the city guard (sighs) this completely derailed the game because we spent the next two hours going back and forth trying to get the brother out of jail while this bad player kept trying to keep him in jail and he kept doing that smirking smile it's like it's what my character would do there could have been some great role-playing around a conflict between the brothers where the, the lawful good holy brother is like, brother, I've told you don't do these things and kind of mm-hmm. giving him side eye and an argument between the brothers. But then we get on the road to the mission. Instead, this player decided that his fun was more important than anyone else's at the table and that his fun lay in completely derailing the plot and preventing the rest of us from getting to do anything actually interesting. Mm -hmm. This turned out to be a running theme with this player. Um, This was my very first experience with him. I met him a couple of years later when some other people were gaming that I was friends with were gaming with him. I'm like, well, maybe I'll I'll give him a shot because these people are cool and they seem to be okay with him. And then like the second or third time we were all together with this guy, he just went off the rails He's one of those players I tell horror stories about. Mm -hmm. 
He's a player who believes in, I make things interesting because I'm playing in character. And basically that's his excuse to be a jerk. My go-to example for that, that I always think of when, you know, you have the, I am a lawful good person and this person did things I don't approve of is okay. In the Dragonlance books, Sturm could not stand Raceland. And yet he was in the same party with Raceland for a long time. Yeah. If they can make it work, maybe you can make it work at your table so that everyone can be a party and they're not inviting. This is a problem I see with a lot of players. They come up with a concept, but they can't adapt the concept to continue with the game. Mm -hmm. And that's the lawful good character being unwilling to ever let the chaotic good character do something that's mildly illegal. Yeah. Or the the player who decides that they're going to play a reluctant hero. They're going to model their their idea on Bilbo before he went off on his venture with the the dwarves or Spider-Man before he became an actual hero or any number of of heroes that started off reluctant to heed the call to adventure. They never get past that, so they spend the entire game having to be dragged to the plot like they're a reluctant horse being unwilling to go someplace. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's an interesting place to start, but you can't do a campaign or even a one-shot. Especially a (laughs) one-shot. Yeah, with that as your only defining personality trait. Oh, yeah. As you can tell, I have some thoughts and feelings on that particular thing. You don't want to overplay, you know, Luke wanting to stay on Tatooine and hang out with his friends and pick up power converters at Tashi Station. Yeah. Otherwise, that person may as well just take that character and go play in Tashi Station, not with the with the rest of the party. This is not on any player to handle, but myself as a GM, I have reached the point where if I have a player doing that, I'm like, okay, that's fine. If your character does not want to go, that's fine. I don't have anything else for you this session. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a one shot, that's great. If you want to go do something else at the con, you're welcome to. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing more for your character if you're not going to get on the spaceship with the rest of the team. If five out of six people are on board with this, I'm not remaking the game for you. <laughs> yes. And it, it's, it is shocking how many players actually expect the GM to run a second game for them at the same time yes. as everyone else is doing something else. I have been there primarily at a few convention games. And part of that's because I feel I do that thing where it's like, well, they paid to get into the convention and they signed up. So I don't want to not provide them with some fun. And then I realize I am also screwing over all the other people that signed yep. up for this game. <laughs> yep. The player that I was going to use for an example, this was sort of a communication issue. Um, we had a campaign. And early in the campaign, there were exploding zombies and there was a cascade effect. And let's just say about 50% of the party made new characters for this session. (laughs) One of the characters that died was a dwarf and he was a cleric and he was a cleric of a god that was not a dwarven god. And we kind of already established that he was a rebel in his family. You know, he was the black sheep. And we started this game. And part of why, you know, how we're going to bring the new people into this is the old friends and the new adventurers were all going to be escorting his body to a temple of his God to be interred. But the dwarf's father, who was paying for all of this, was not paying for any extra amenities. He was like, I am 
going to toss a few coins at you adventurers to take his body there. Um, he is not going to be buried in dwarven lands. There's not going to be, you know, he doesn't have any special arrangements. I'm not giving you anything, you know, great to go along with here. And one of the players who was not the player of the dwarf, because that player was completely on board. This is exactly what he wanted out of that character, even though he died and he's playing someone else now. This other player took umbrage at that. He was just not happy. This is not right. A dwarven father should not treat his son this way. This isn't a way to, you know, address adventurers that you're hiring to escort your your son's body. But I was having a hard time because the way he was phrasing this, I couldn't tell whether he was saying this in character or in person. And I even like asked him point blank a few times and he just kept reiterating that this was wrong. This mission shouldn't be going this way. You know, he should be doing, you know, he should be providing more of an escort. He should be doing this and that. And after asking him two or three times, I was like, are you saying this in person, you know, as a character or is this you complaining about it? Apparently he was also getting frustrated over saying this over. And he said, no, it's me. I think this is wrong. I don't think you should have structured this game this way. If he had said that right up front, I think I probably could have handled it a little bit differently. But the fact that we went through all of that, we wasted like a half an hour on this. And by the time I finally got it out of him that he was basically telling me that he did not like the way I set up a scenario as a DM, I was completely out of it. I could not wrap my head around running a game that night because it just turned into this exercise in futility at this point. There is sometimes this belief that you need to solve all problems in character, in character. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, especially if you are frustrated with something out of character, you can't solve it in character. You have to step out and be like, hey, I'm frustrated with this scene because it doesn't feel like it's right. Yeah. And you have to be upfront with that because if, you're, if you only ever try and solve things in character, which, you know, some people would call stepping out of character to do something metagaming and mm -hmm. there's a whole other topic built into that. But like, if you're having a frustration with a scene, Talk it out. Take a moment. Pause. Talk it out. Don't let it completely derail the game. Yeah. And I, I also, I kind of wish that if I would have known more clearly that this was a problem he was having with the game itself, I could have brought up and talked to the player who set this up. Like the player is part of why that relationship existed that way. I didn't decide I was going to make a dwarven father that was ashamed of his son that was going to treat him poorly. I had a player that wanted their character to be on the outs with their family. So, you know, this is one of those things where it was kind of, I, I, I think I was having a hard time understanding what they're saying, because to me, this was kind of a natural extension of what we've established for this campaign. This wasn't just me coming up with this out of the blue, but it, it was, it's, it's one of those things. I think when you have too contentious of a meta discussion about how the game is structured or the rules or how it works, sometimes it just saps your ability to actually play the game. Mm -hmm. Now, on a happier note, can you think of a time in a game session where things were going okay, but then a player did something that just really increased everybody's enjoyment of the session? You know, I had a hard time pinning down one specific moment because I've had so many games where players just hit things just the right way and the game starts singing. Mm -hmm. I ha I have a one shot. I have a D and D one shot. I have run at conventions uh, called the Lost Star of Windover. In it, the queen is dying because she took on this curse many years ago, and it's finally come calling. 
And these characters need to go find the star to determine who is going to be the next ruler of the kingdom. You know, there's all sorts of connections between these characters. It's some of it, you know, playing with strangers. Sometimes you never know what you're going to get. There were there was at least one same-sex relationship between some of the characters, mm-hmm. and I was a little worried how some players might respond to this. And I ran this at Gen Con, and a couple of the players were like, you know, like the two characters that were in that relationship, the players saw it and were like a little unsure how to go with it. By halfway through the game, they were fully invested. Uh-huh. And they were absolutely ready to, you know, to, to play out that these characters were absolutely devoted to each other, even if they weren't supposed to be allowed to be together. Mm-hmm. Because the whole thing was the queen had taken on this curse to basically save somebody she cared about at the very end of the game. And, and, you know, this isn't necessarily, you know, the game was going okay and it turned at the last minute. It was just these combination of things where the players did things that just absolutely like made my heart sing because (laughs) they, they, they got into it. One of the characters basically solved the problem of who should stay ruler because she was like, no, the queen should be the ruler because that curse didn't belong to her. It belonged to me and basically was able to heal the queen in a way that was unexpected. Mm -hmm. And like I've had other players that I told that that was how the the thing was solved. And they're like, why didn't I think of that? Um. Every table is unique. Yeah, every table was unique. And and that's one of the reasons I love running convention games and I love rerunning scenarios at conventions because you get to see how different players deal with the different things. And for the most part, it's always been amazing. Um, I have a couple of stories that are not not part of this question <laughs> because they're not on the good side of things. But for me, it's those moments when the players lean into the characters they're playing in such a way that makes the game fun for everyone else at the table. Yeah. By the way, I've just cited that um, whenever we need to put a pin in a topic that just comes up when we're discussing things, since we don't have a Bob, because it's a D&D show, <laughs> we're going to have an unseen Bob, and unseen Bob is going to put a pin in <laughs> for <laughs> So, uh, Unseen Bob, we really should talk about running the same adventure more than once, because I think that is an interesting yes. topic. But I don't want to get off on that yet. <laughs> um, I had a player in a scenario where they were working for a merchant, and they were taking a bunch of his stuff from one city to another. Fairly standard, you know, low-level adventure. And he sends along one of, you know, like his seneschal to go with them. The backstory I had for this is they're going to get ambushed by bandits. The Seneschal actually sold them out because he has gambling debts to pay off and the bandits are going to cut him in on part of what they get for this uh, wagon when they, you know, when they uh, ambush the party. I fully expected, like, the main thing I wanted was I wanted the Seneschal there so that he could make sure the PCs knew that the person that hired them didn't screw them over because I didn't want them thinking that that NPC wasn't trustworthy. Right. So the whole reason I came up with the Seneschal character was just to let them know, no, this is the guy screwing you over, not the person that hired you for the job. Well, as they're traveling, before they hit the um before they hit the ambush, 
I had a player that just decided, like, for one thing, he was just asking constantly, like, so what's in the cart? And, you know, the Seneschal would, like, mention, well, we can't, you know, you know, I don't have a detailed list that I can give you because I'm supposed to be, you know, keeping some of this close to the vest. And he's just, so, so what's in the cart? And he would just, he just kept doing that over and over again. And then they would like banter with him continuously. And they ended up like drawing out from this, uh, the Seneschal that he was actually really bad at gambling, but also very addicted to gambling. And I, that was my backstory that I didn't know how well that was going to be expressed. I just knew that he was, you know, he was in with these bandits for a reason. So because they spent this time talking to him and teasing him and basically trying to drive him nuts and, you know, find out, you know, exactly what they're carrying from point A to point B, they actually created kind of a relationship with this character. So when the bandits get ready to ambush them, the Seneschal is then taking them aside and saying, hey, guys, I'm really sorry. I am deep in debt. I set up this ambush. I don't want anyone to get hurt. Let me go talk to the uh, talk to the bandits beforehand, and maybe we can work something out. And you know, the PCs decided, no, like we're not going to get upset with you, but we don't trust these bandits roaming around. So they were fairly rough with the bandits, but they did not turn on the NPC. They actually kind of liked the NPC at this point. <laughs> They constantly made fun of him for being a terrible gambler and they were intentionally keeping away, keeping him away from like gambling halls and everything. They didn't tell his boss about any of this stuff. They did every so often get him to ask uh, his boss for a favor because they had leverage on him. They definitely did that, but it turned into this NPC that they actually kind of liked interacting with. And I was really shocked. And it was all because that one player just kept, you know, poking and prodding at this at this uh, NPC and getting as much information as he could out of him because it was just like, here, here's an NPC. I'm not going to waste this opportunity to, you know, interact with someone that's in the game. <laughs> so on a more personal level, can you think of something that you have done as a player that has made the game less fun for other people at the table? Okay. Confession time. <laughs> I am not fun to have at your table if I'm getting frustrated. <laughs> I can be a real pain for GMs, especially GMs. If I'm getting frustrated with something they're doing, I can be a real pain in the butt. Usually I can handle it a little bit better if it's a player that's frustrating me. Whereas, you know, basically I'll just direct my, my Ange frustration at that player and be like, dude, cut it out um but if it's a gm running the game and i'm having issues i can be a little bit of a problem <laughs> a while back i had a friend running the sprawl forest sprawl is powered by the apocalypse cyberpunk game mm -hmm. and i knew the game better than the gm did he hadn't really run any powered by the apocalypse games He's a very fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants type of guy. Mm -hmm. um, and there were things that he was doing that were in the grand scheme of the sprawl and Powered by the Apocalypse wrong. Yeah. And I was basically backseat GMing him. <laughs> and it was about halfway through the game, I realized, wow, Ange, you're kind of being an ass. <laughs> I was making the game not fun for everyone else because I was 
disrupting the flow of what he was trying to do and the enjoyment of the other players because I was trying to get him to run the game properly when he was just trying to have some fun with his friends. Mm -hmm. There are definitely better ways to handle trying to... If you understand a game better than the GM, there are better ways to handle it um, than trying to GM the game for them yeah. in the middle of the game. Um, I, I did apologize to everyone later. <laughs> it was a very big learning moment for me. And, and I'm going to say this because this is also partially me deflecting for what I'm about to say. But, you know, I think it is important to remember, like, even if you've been playing a long time, even if you have a lot of best practices that you have internalized, you can still have nights when you do things that are like, this is not good for this game and I should not be doing this. Yeah. I'm not saying rules lawyers are bad because there is something to be said mm. for having a good rules lawyer among your players. Yeah. Um, I, I personally love having my buddy Tristan at my table because I know if I'm struggling with a rule, I can just look at him and he'll give me what I need to, yeah. to keep moving with the game. It is sometimes really good to be able to have a player at the table who knows the rules really well that can help you facilitate the game. What you don't want is a player that is going to override you and bully yeah. you because you're not running the game the way they want you to run it. Yeah, I think that's... Um, that is kind of the fine line with, with rules lawyers. Yeah, when it comes to those kind of rules discussions, I think it's, one, you need to have someone that wants your input, and two, you need to give it at the right time. Like, when there is a good point to say, oh, yeah, you said you were having a hard time with this rule, it's supposed to go this way, and not just, wait, stop everything! You did that wrong! <laughs> Yeah, and that's kind of what I did with my friend running the Sprawl game. It was not not cool, not good. So my example is more recent than I would like to admit. But, I mean, it was 2016. It's been a while, but it's also... I was old enough at this point in time, I should know better. Um, I was playing in a cleric in, in the Out of the Abyss uh, adventure for 5e. And... I had set up this backstory for my character that he was a cleric of Cyric and he never let anyone know who his actual god was. He was always pretending to be a cleric of someone else. And I wasn't playing this character to be like an evil jerk. He was more like chaotic neutral and just an inveterate liar. Like he just couldn't tell the truth about things. So it was more that angle of worshiping Cyric than, you know, being a total jerk. However, I did have a backstory where a person from another adventuring party knew that I had completely freaked out when the party got attacked and abandoned them and, you know, ran away later on in the set in the session, we run into someone that was from that adventuring company. I decided this is not good. I don't want him telling any secrets that he may have learned about me when I was part of their adventuring company, but I also don't see my character as just a flat out murderer. And then we came into a wild magic area of the Underdark. I did something and to, you know, trigger a wild magic surge and it did something that affected that NPC. And so I got the brilliant idea that every round I was going to just trigger wild magic surges and hope that one of them would incapacitate this guy in some way. And this was terrible for a, a number of things because this was one, 
me just triggering wild magic surges, which had the potential to derail everything else that was going on in the game every time it was my turn. It was me basically playing my story out at the table outside of everyone else's. I mean, other people didn't even know that this character was, you know, somebody that knew me. And this is, you know, this is a whole other thing that we've talked about at other times. Like sometimes the players at the character at the table should know your secrets, even if the characters don't. Yeah. There, there are points where it is fun. Like it, it, like I know there are people who play and they're like, no secrets ever. Mm. I get it. But at the same time, sometimes it is fun to discover stuff in character. Mm-hmm. And the, the trick is figuring out where that could go wrong and where it could go right. Because I've seen it go right. And I've also seen it go very wrong. I realized like I was sitting there going, oh, this will be really funny. Ha ha ha. And after I had been doing it for like three or four rounds, I'm like, this isn't funny. I'm being obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) And before I even had a chance to really own up to being obnoxious, I I can tell the DM had kind of had enough of my crap because he just triggered a wild magic surge where a nightmare showed up and picked up the guy and carried him off to another plane of existence. And having been on the other side of the DM screen, I feel like that is something that he just did like, this NPC is causing me more trouble than it's worth, and I don't want to deal with that player interacting with us anymore, so I'm going to remove it from the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you apologize to that GM later? Yes, I did. He was our regular Adventures League GM, and he would run the hardback adventures as Adventures League games, but he also ran them in a way that really felt like you were just playing the adventures, and you can fill out this log sheet, too, mm-hmm. if you want to take this character and play it somewhere else. Gotcha. So it was he was a really good DM and I really enjoyed that that era of playing Adventurers League. Gotcha. So can you think of something that you've done as a player that you think might have made the game better for everyone at the table? This question triggers a little bit of a combination of egoism and imposter syndrome, because I don't know. (laughs) Have I made it better for other players at the table? Is it is it is it egotistical to say that I've done anyway? I like to think that this moment made the game better for everyone at the table but jared's gonna have to tell me if it did because he was there (laughs) basically it was during a storms king thunder game and the group was in a position to observe something going on with a bunch of ogres and orcs and other people that was obviously not good it was obviously something that was probably going to make our lives more difficult if they completed whatever it was they were doing down there and there was a lot of hemming and hawing about well, do we deal with this now? Do we just... And I, as my tabaxi wizard, was like, this is a now problem. And I cast a fireball over the heads (laughs) of everyone observing to land in smack dab in the center of everything down there. Because I was like, I'm tired of waiting and discussing. We're going to have a fight now. Like, you don't always want to be pure chaos and go against what the other characters are doing or their players want to have happen at the table. But sometimes if it is obvious that people don't know what to do and are kind of dragging their feet and are having or hawing or over planning or some, sometimes you just want to make this a now problem. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, to better frame this too, I really feel like in that session, everyone pretty much knew we were going to get into a fight. So this wasn't something like, you had gotten us into a dangerous situation that, you know, we weren't going to get into. It was more just like everyone was kind of like, I don't know, how should we start this? You know, why 
what are you know should we start eh, i think we might you know and it was just that sort of thing where like definitely fighting was on the table as a likely option and <laughs> so you making the decision was great and it also gave us that uh catchphrase for the rest of the campaign i i do believe so somebody problem. i believe it was i believe it was john's paladin who was like well this could be a tomorrow problem <laughs> yeah no, this is a now. Yeah, problem. we were still kind of debating whether or not we could ignore the encounter, but it wasn't. It definitely wasn't one of those things like there's a dragon down there. Maybe we should attack it now. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it. I thought it definitely made the night. <laughs> it, it was it was one of my favorite moments of that campaign. And I like to think it made things better for everyone else at the table. But, you know, <laughs> this is one of those. I don't know. I think I'm a delight, but. I don't want to be too egotistical <laughs> about this. Oh, so, okay. I will pat myself on the back for this, this one here. Uh, this memory, actually, I like this one because this is literally the very first convention that I ever went to. This is the first time I had been playing D&D with in people the Stone that were Age. not my friends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we had eight people at this table and everyone's backstory had them connected to one or two other player characters, but nobody was really referencing any of that stuff. And we were getting hired and we were going to meet this elven Lord and he was going to tell us what we needed to do. And then we were going to set off on this mission and do the mission. And everyone is just kind of like, yes, that's cool. We'll, we'll go from point A to point B. Now we're at point B point B. Tell us what the, the quest is going to be. And the DM just happened to mention that the elf Lord didn't want to, you know, rush us out of his domain that quickly. So he has us all sit down for dinner. And again, people are just sort of like, okay, fine. Let's just say we had dinner and now give us our quest. And I'm looking on my character sheet. My character sheet says that I am best friends with the ranger. And we're both from a barbarian tribe. And we're kind of outsiders from the rest of the people in this group. So my question, as soon as I read that is to the DM is, what's elven etiquette for a dinner? <laughs> and he was like huh that's a good question he's like i'm gonna say that elves like to eat in complete silence while they meditate on you know the you know the food and the company that they're in because there's no reason to rush conversation you know dinner is a time when everyone can like okay i'm gonna start telling jokes <laughs> so my barbarian bard started like bringing the ranger into things like remember that one time when we did this thing and just you know the you know making the all the elves just cringe because we're sitting here getting loud at this dinner <laughs> and then other people started jumping in and they started like mentioning hey you know to people that their character was connected to hey remember that time we did this and all of a sudden at that dinner everyone started to actually read who they were connected to and come up with something to express to the group how they were connected to those you other were people the role playing catalyst. Yes. And I was so happy because I didn't, I was afraid I was going to go to my first convention and just be terrified and not say anything. And it went the exact opposite. I was like, I don't know these people. I might as well just ham it up. <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite thing was we all decided to have like a training montage after dinner, you know, like the elves are just like cringing because it's like, we need to practice before we head out set up some targets. We're going to do some archery and we're going to do, <laughs> we were setting up like American gladiator type type things to practice our maneuvers and everything. 
it was great. I really enjoyed it. And everybody just kind of like started role playing as soon as somebody broke the ice. So I am still kind of proud of that situation. You know, and imagining the, 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 you know, if this is your very first convention, I, I joke the Stone Age, it was probably back in the 80s, maybe the early 90s. Some people. Yeah, it was 90, 91. Yeah, I think, people were sometimes people, especially when you're at a convention and you're with strangers, some people were a little more hesitant to get into the role playing. And sometimes you just needed that ice broken to get things rolling. Oh, yeah, definitely. So as a DM, what are some of the things you see players doing that you wish they would approach from a different direction? Don't turtle. <laughs> Nothing drives me more bonkers as a GM than when the players are too afraid to do things in the game. Um, seriously, folks, I'm a cream puff. I am never going to be a deadly GM. I am not going to kill your characters unless it is pure accident or it's <laughs> it's thematically appropriate for the game. I want to challenge my players, but I just can't bring it in myself to be deadly. Um and yeah. it it will it, it it boggles my mind when the players are like, "Oh no, we can't possibly engage with this storyline." I was running uh, an uncharted worlds campaign. Uncharted worlds is a powered by the apocalypse um uh, space opera game and the mm. characters were uh basically an investigative team associated with kind of like a starfleet style vehicle and they were told hey we haven't heard from this mining station in a while please go investigate it and they went out to investigate it and they get there and things are a little weird when they arrive and people seem to be kind of strange and they very quickly realize the station is being held by pirates and the pirates are having people pretend everything is normal. So they've very quickly deal with that situation and they find out that the pirate king and his full crew are out investigating something and are on their way back to the station. And one of my players is like, oh, okay, well, we've, we've done what we were told to do. We're, we found out what was going on. We should leave now. And I'm like, what? Like, we've done what we were told to do, and we should leave now. And a couple of other players just like, yeah, I don't know if I can take on a pirate king, man. We should probably get out of here. And I'm like, and leave all of the workers from the mining station just here to deal with the pirate king on their own after you just killed his people he left in charge here? And they're like, well, you know, and at that point I was like, okay that's fine if that's what you want to do, but we're done playing for the day because <laughs> that's what I had for you. This is the same group that was on a, they found a derelict colony ship, ancient colony ship, and uh, they, they start investigating it and one of the characters was an AI and he has this uh, kind of robot chassis he rides in and they get onto the, the the, ro the derelict ship and he starts playing with one of the, the computer consoles and gets zapped by an energy being that kind of shunts him back to his home on their ship. My players mm. panicked and ran and advocated for blowing up the colony ship. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, but, but you don't know any, like, like in my mind, there were, 
there were still some viable colonists in cryosleep, <laughs> you know, and just I, I was like, I don't know what to do with you guys. I honestly do it's not the- know what to do with players who don't want to do cool, awesome, adventurous things. <laughs> It, it's the uh, line from Aliens. Nuke it from orbit. That's the only way to be sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes I, I, you know, sometimes in my D and D games, depending upon it, 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 it's all a combination of players. I have one group of people mm-hmm. I run for that it's never a problem. They're they're down for being heroic adventurers and get into it. And I've got another group that just I don't know who hurt them in the eighties. But they are so afraid to just do stuff and engage stuff, and it just drives me nuts. See, one of the things that I was going to talk about that I wish players would not do, I think is actually tied to what you're talking about. And that is, it's not that they are afraid to do anything. It's that they are very methodical and mysterious about what they're doing. (laughs) I'm going to set a glass of water over here. Now I'm going to tie a string here. And I, I've had a couple players do this and it's almost always people that have been playing for a while and they'll set this up and they, um, well, what are you doing? Oh, just wait, I'm going to put a glue strip over here. And it's like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, when it's this guy's turn, he's going to step on this and it's going to trigger this. And then this is going to happen blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, I want you to be able to do cool stuff. I am not going to you know, you know, find out, you know, figure out what you're trying to do in the middle of this and then try and shut it down before you can do cool stuff. In fact, I may just let you say on your turn, explain to me what you did in order to do this. And then you can make it sound as cool as you want to. And you don't have to try and trick the DM into letting you get what you want. Again, sometimes (laughs) it's like, show me on the doll where the bad GM from the eighties hurt you. Yeah. And I really think that that's what it is. It's having an adversarial GM so long that either you're afraid they're going to figure out what you're doing and they're going to stop your fun before you can have it, or you're just afraid to do anything because they're going to punish you for anything yeah. that you know requires them to make a decision. <sighs> so as a DM, what are some behaviors or ideas that you would like to thank players for doing at the table? So when I run or even play games, I am all about the ensemble characters. Um, I, I, you know, it is... Anytime you put a game to a table, it's an ensemble story. It's an ensemble show. It's about all of the characters there. And the players who work to connect to the other characters just make my life so much easier. So much easier. Mm-hmm. Um I I was running I was running um uh Tales from the Loop this weekend at um uh Yukon in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and one of my players, who I adore, picked Karen, the jock, and like immediately was leaning into their relationship with Christopher, the 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 computer geek who's bullied by other mm. kids at school, or how she kind of has a crush on Sean, the popular kid, and like you know, just leaning into these moments that just make the game so much more. Like they just, they just, they make the game sing. Yeah. And honestly, I think that's another case where what we're taught, what we were going to talk about for this question dovetails, because one of the things that I love is when people build their own connections, to someone else in the party as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. 
I mean that that was actually one of the things I liked about our Storm King Thund, Storm King's Thunder game is that you know Nagrat and and your character Sapphire are just like clicked yeah, right, right away. away. Like we immediately we knew that these two were friends. So that was a relationship that existed beyond just the adventuring party that we had. Yeah. It's like these are these are the things that make a game sing for me. It's these mm-hmm. these connections between the characters that let me as a GM just sit back and watch magic happen. And you know, when you put something in your backstory, whether it's your traits, ideals, bonds, flaws, or just a detail about your character, I want to know those things so I can work them into the campaign, but I am also not upset if you remind me that they exist mm-hmm. in a while. Especially if you remind me at a thematically appropriate time. Like, you know, if if you were to have you know, your tiefling say something like, hey, I'm going to ask them about if anyone had seen my sister. You know, that works into that. And even if I'm not planning on having that NPC say, yes, I saw your sister and she's blah, blah, blah. That does remind me that that is a thing that your character cares about. So I do need to keep that in mind as an right. element to work into the campaign. So is there something that a player can do during session zero to help make the game better for everyone in be as excited about the game as the GM is. Um, <laughs> seriously, there's, there's, and, and I'm, I'm giving Jared a side eye because he has also not responded to a conversation of that's supposed to be precursor to session zero to a game I'm going to be running in the future. Uh, but I want the players to. Did I, did I not answer that? Oh my God. I don't think you have. <laughs> I think the last I looked, the only person who had, had answered was Weregator. You know, it's funny. I probably answered and didn't text you or send it back to you. (laughs) (laughs) You you may have done the thing I do and answer in your head. You think about the question and you have an answer for it and then you wander away before you've actually typed it. Um, But Uh but (laughs) getting back to our question here without throwing shade at you, um, I want the players to be as excited about the game as I am and I want them to make sure they're building a character that is going to work in the game we're bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. As a GM, I want to make a game that my players are going to enjoy. There is nothing better for your ego than to hear your players talking about how awesome your game is to other people. That is an amazing feeling to have. But I need those characters to fit in the game I'm bringing to the table, and I'm trying to tailor it to those characters. But if you have mm-hmm. somebody who is making a character that doesn't fit, it's really hard to slam that square peg into the round hole of the campaign you're trying to do. You know, So mm-hmm. make sure you're listening to what the GM is presenting, that you understand what the setting is going to be and who the characters are, and work with your GM to make sure you're going to enjoy the ideas behind your character as much as the GM is going to enjoy running the game for that character. Yeah, definitely. And and the funny thing is that session zero is actually the better place to ask that question that we have talked about that we all hate, which is why would my character want to do this? If you're going to ask that question, ask it in session zero, not in session one. I will actually, (laughs) I, I, I very often as a GM will kind of cut that off at the knees because I will say, mm-hmm. your character needs to agree to these things. And yeah. I will set up the parameters of the campaign to be like, it doesn't matter who your character is, but they need to agree to these things to take part in 
what this campaign is going to be. Yeah. I mean, if you sit there in session zero and you say, okay, you're all going to be bounty hunters that hunt down wizards that illegally practice magic. If the, if the DM tells you that in session zero, don't wait until session one to say, I don't know why I'm a bounty hunter. That just doesn't make sense for this character. Because then you have not done what you, you should have done in session zero. <laughs> um, the main thing that I would say about session zero is just feed me as many plot elements that I can use later on. As a caveat, though, I would flip that around and say, if you have 20 things that you want to happen to your, your PC, do not expect me to be able to work all of yeah. that in. However, if you have two or three things that are going to be really important about your character development that you want to be part of your character story, I can work with that. And I want to work with that. I will say as a player, it is super heartbreaking to put thought and care into the background of a character and then have the GM just completely ignore it and never, ever reference it ever again. Mm -hmm. Like, please don't do that to your players. Yeah. If your players are giving you, maybe they're not giving you gold, they're giving you copper, maybe bronze. (laughs) You can still polish that into something that looks really nice. So please use what your players are giving you in your campaign to help personalize it for them. I mean, that was one of the things in our campaign. I really was trying to give you all at least some kind of resolution by this point in the campaign for some of those backstory elements that each of you had. I, I will also follow up on that. Um, as a pl- Since this is supposed to be for players, not GMs. As yeah. a player, <laughs> if you have things you want to see in the game, please respond to them when the GM puts them in the game for you. <laughs> I had a player who really wanted to have, I don't know, flirtatious danger type things happen to their character. And I tried to accommodate this. And it was one of the most awkward scenes I've ever tried to bring to a table ever. And it was just not fun for anyone involved because the player just kind of sat there and didn't respond, and I'm like, I really don't want to be playing this sexy demon dude guy, but this is what you asked for, so I'm trying to give it to you. Please, please, you know, like, at least, I don't know, so. I want to be a great legendary dragon slayer. You find out there's this dragon slaying spear at the bottom of this one dungeon. Eh, That's all the way over there. I don't want to go there. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, goodness. So is there something that you think a player can do specifically for another player to make games better for everybody? I think the best players make other players feel like their characters are part of the game. Um, This can be through character stuff like we talked about where players are immediately establishing connections with each other and building those bonds in character. But it can also be things like making sure they're included when discussing tactics or how to solve a puzzle, or how to do a thing, or asking their opinion on things. I adore players that help newer players with mechanics and other crunchier bits of the game, so that the, but they do it in a way that doesn't make the new player feel bad for being new and inexperienced with the game. The GM has so many things going on to have that experienced player at the table that be able to reach out and help keep the mechanics of the game flowing smoothly can be super helpful, especially if they're also doing it in ways that make that that person's character feel like part of the group. And I think part of that that I would throw in there too is that one of the things I love is when people build in jokes and continuity 
into a party. What I mean is it's not just remarking, hey, remember that time I did this? I mean, having your character say, oh my God, you're not doing X again, are you? Yeah. That thing where you're showing that your character has interacted with another player and has noted something about their character. When I was a player in the um, uh, Princes of the Apocalypse game, our diviner in the group was absolutely unhinged and he was obsessed with eyes and he was very upset that the elder elemental eye was not properly using the supernatural motifs of an eye with enough respect. (laughs) (laughs) And the monk and I in the group, again, this is something like I, we already forged this idea that the monk and I were kind of friends beyond just being part of the adventuring group. And we would sit here and joke about how after we stop this, we're going to have to follow him around to make sure that he doesn't try and end the world too. (laughs) So we had this running joke about how the diviner probably is going to try and end the world at some point too. He's just not the immediate threat, (laughs) (laughs) but it was a friendly thing where, you know, we were, we would refer to that. Sometimes it's little moments too, like in the city of Cal's campaign, my friend's character, Alaric, who is a, a cleric of cord, so lightning, all about the ale, because he's a Viking-type character. He learned my character could make things cold real quick, so he would just basically grab his mug, hold it out to my direction, I'd hit it with a finger, and make his ale cold for him. And it's like it's been this ongoing, running thing through the entire (laughs) campaign. You know, these little connections between characters that show that they are a cohesive group that you would actually want to see a a story about. I mean, that's one of my favorite genres of fantasy is it's what I call buddy fantasy. It's mm-hmm. like the Fafford and Mauser thing where it's like they aren't just adventurers. They are also friends. Yes. So they talk to each other like friends and they they jab each other like friends. And, you know, you're reading about two friends who also do adventuring. There's there's a certain degree, especially with D&D games, where you can end up with a party of people where it's like, why are these people together? Yes. You can sometimes force it because they're all part of the same organization they're all working for somebody they want the paycheck whatever but but sometimes it's like why would these people work together Mm -hmm. what is the bond here that keeps them going forward i i love it when people put the thought into creating those moments in character so that we understand why those bonds are still so strong you know, why these characters are going through stuff through thick and thin together, Mm -hmm. you know, with all the stuff the GM is throwing at them. Be the player that helps make that stuff happen. I know I keep going to this well, but looking at the Heroes of the Lance from Dragonlance, one of the things that I kind of loved about the interplay between all of them is, like, everyone in the group loved Karaman, and almost no one liked Raistlin. But they would put up with Raceland because A, he could use magic, and B, he was Caramon's brother. Yep. But also, you had that dynamic where Tannis leaned on Raceland because Raceland would tell him unpleasant things that needed to be said. He could trust Raceland to do that, too. And he kind of leaned on him as the leader of the group to have Raceland tell him, we're going to have to do this really terrible thing, and you're going to have to decide whether we do it now or later. (laughs) Yep. So do you have any specific examples that you would point to where players have contributed to the success of a game session or a campaign that people that are players can go look at? I have a series of articles on the stew that talk about being a better player (laughs) that uh, could give you some information there. It's really hard for me to pull on a specific example. 
I have a collection of people that I absolutely love to game with and do so every chance I get because the way they play enhances almost any game they're in. So I don't have specific examples of those things. I would say go read my articles that I wrote about this. Yes, go read Angie's articles. I think I've got three of them up and I've tried to do a fourth, but I haven't finished it yet. I'm going to say, and, and this isn't like, this isn't what you're asking for. This isn't an example that I can send people to, but I'm going <laughs> to say anyone who wants to be a better player, remember to yes and. Mm -hmm. When you are presented by something with the GM, don't shut it down. Don't ignore it. Try and lean into yes and we're doing this. It's one of the core philosophies of improvisation. And if you learn how to do it in the right way to include other players and keep the momentum of the game going, almost any GM out there will want to have you at their table. And I think the important thing about Yes And that a lot of people don't always get is that it is about adding more texture, not escalating. Yes. In the Misdirected Mark community, you will hear the term used Rainmaker. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I actually like this term because sometimes I don't like some of the rainmakers <laughs> at my table. There is a difference between being a player who keeps the game moving forward and helps make things fun and keep stuff moving forward and players who just, I mean, I say this as somebody who threw a fireball to start a fight, um, <laughs> who throw fireballs into the mix mm -hmm. and just cause chaos. Yeah, You want to be the mix of do something because it's cool and awesome and fun is going to be great for everyone at the table to just I'm causing chaos because chaos is my middle name. Well, I was going to say like an example with you throwing that fireball. I have an example from a campaign that I was in that is similar to that, but is entirely the wrong way to do it, which is again in our, uh, in our uh, Prince of the Apocalypse game, we had an Asimar divine soul and he had just, popped his wings, so he's only got a limited amount of time that his wings are going to be out and he's going to be doing his extra radiant damage and everything. The rest of us are beaten and battered and, you know, under half of our hit points and are down to our last spell slots. But he decided he didn't want to waste his resource, so he starts running to other rooms, trying to chain more adversaries to show up. So we stay in initiative, so he keeps being able to use his, his wings. Because he's looking at his resources and saying, I'm still good. And the rest of us are like dragging our characters behind him. Oh my gosh, we're going to die. <laughs> See, we had something like that happen in the Night's Dark Terror game where we were in one of the, the Goblin Warrens mm -hmm. and our barbarian wanted to make as much use of his last rage as he could. But we had all the players on board with that. Yes. So we were rushing to the next room to see if we could keep his rage up yeah. as we, we tried to make the fight continue. But that's a, you know, that's a, the whole party is on board with this rather than one player doing it because it helps them. Yes, this, this was more of a, wait, why are you leaving the room? <laughs> oh, come on, Leroy Jenkins, this is not your game. Yeah, exactly. I would say, though, for examples, there's a couple things that I wanted to bring up. And it is very much about players and how important players are to a campaign and best practices. And that is a lot of people will talk about how great Matt Mercer and Brennan Lee Mulligan are as DM. And they are. However, what I would like you to do sometime is watch them when they are running their games 
and see how the players react to them because both of them look so much better because they almost (laughs) always have tables full of people that are engaged and will take something and run with it. They are really good GMs, but the game itself is great because the players also contribute to those, to those campaigns. They are very good GMs. They have a stacked deck when it comes to the players at their table. Yes. And I, I've seen what happens when you have a GM who is a fantastic GM and they, they have a player who's not great at the table. There was mm-hmm. a, an incident last year, I think it was, we were playing a game and we had a player who kept deciding they were doing something and rolling the dice before the GM asked for a roll and then deciding that that meant that they were completely aware of what other characters were doing, even though they should have no idea. And the GM was doing their best, but they couldn't get a handle on getting this one player under control. And they were basically making what would have been an awesome game less fun for everyone else at the table. And I have had players, I know we're supposed to be talking about, you know, how to be better players, but I have had players at the table that just mm-hmm. sap my energy because I can't handle yeah. them. <laughs> The players you don't want at your table are the players who do their own thing because that's what they think they should do, and it's no fun for anyone else at the table. The players who don't do anything, please, it's team sport. Be a team player. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that sometimes it gets lost when you just say that it is a role-playing game, but role-playing is a collaborative storytelling game. All of those things are true. It is collaborative. Everyone needs to work together. It's storytelling. We want a narrative to come out of it, but it's also a game. So there are rules and procedures and things we follow in order to tell the story. So all those things are true. You know, it's not just a one person story. So it's entertaining. It's it's it is a collaborative effort. Honestly, if you want to just tell your character story, go play a LARP. There's also a lot of really good solo RPGs or supplements for existing RPGs to let you play them solo now if you really want to be the center of attention all the time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I I will say as kind of a final note on this topic, I have probably met more good, enjoyable players than I have met bad players. It's just the bad players make for great stories sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what happens. They're great lessons in what not to do. We've talked about the players that sap your energy, but I'll be honest, there are people, when I see them show up at a convention table, I am so excited that they're there because I know they are going to elevate the game. Yep. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. So moving on into our downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look at something related to D&D that we want to pass along to you, our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. So I've been holding off on talking about movies and TV shows Not because we're like paid influencers that had to do this, but because of the writer's strike and the actor's strike, I just didn't feel great about, you know, talking about all of this different media that was coming out. But those are over now. And there's been a lot of fantasy stuff that that happened. So I just wanted to throw some of this out there. Wheel of Time Season 2 is out there on Amazon Prime. Uh, The Winter King, which is an adaptation of uh, Bernard Corwell's uh, Warlord's Chronicle, which is a historic King Arthur story, which I am a sucker for. That's out on MGM+. Plus. Um, the trailer for Percy Jackson and the Olympians that's going to be a series on Disney Plus dropped, and it's debuting December 20th. There's the live-action One Piece has lots of fantasy elements in it, 
And also, you should watch Puss in Boots The Last Wish because that is one of the greatest swashbuckling movies that you could ever hope for. I love Puss in Boots. Now that I got those pent-up months of (laughs) of recommending uh, movies and TV shows out. So for me, there is a Thumbershod ornament. There is an ornament of that chonky, beautiful dragon (laughs) from Honor Among Thieves. I was, I was, you know, just happened across a link to the um, Hallmark's ornaments, and I was scrolling through looking to see what nerd-related ornaments they have, because they always have something Star Trek, they usually have some superhero stuff, and then all of a sudden, right there in front of me was the fat dragon, and he had this light-up <laughs> flame bursting out of his mouth, and I'm like, I must have this fat boy to put on my tree. So if you enjoy Christmas and have a Christmas tree and have place for ornaments, you might possibly want to see if you can pick up a Thumbershod for your very own sparkling menagerie holiday joy. <laughs> also, you know, Hallmark needs to have enough D&D ornaments that you can just do a whole tree now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need like mimics and displacer bees. Do <laughs> <laughs> you see Chris Pine? said that he is fairly certain there will be a sequel. I did see that. I was very excited. Hopefully this can happen because I think that movie deserves a sequel. Definitely. Um, I've seen people talking about that, how it really, it has been doing big numbers on streaming, like way more than they would have expected. I really do think it was released at a bad time in theaters. This has been a very interesting year for movies, and this is probably going way off topic because we've had (laughs) some spectacularly successful movies at the box office. Barbie and Oppenheimer are the mm-hmm. two that came, you know, I mean, like if you were watching things, you saw them coming, but like for most people came out of nowhere yeah. to become these huge box office successes. Um, in, in Guardians 3, I mean, my God, Guardians oh, 3 yeah. was amazing. But you've had this kind of mix of, you know, all these flops. Oh my God, we have these big budget movies that are flops. And some of them I would say are legitimate flops, like the Flash movie or mm-hmm. like the poor Indiana Jones movie. But some of them, like D&D Honor Among Thieves and this most recent, the Marvels, yeah, I mean, they're they're not hitting the numbers the studios wanted them to hit. Yeah. But I would not say these are flops by any stretch of the imagination. It's kind of a paradox because the worse other big budget movies do, the more they expect the next big budget movie to make up that shortfall. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy as it keeps rolling on. It's a weird year for movies. That's been Movie Talk with Angie and Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> we are happily part of the Misdirected Mark productions network so we wanted to give a shout out to another mmp show if you're enjoying our show also consider checking out pandas talking games queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes join pandas phil and senda every wednesday answering listener questions about playing running and designing ttrpgs get cozy and talk about some games We've used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us the next time we start an adventure. Yay!